0: I now have the pleasure of introducing today's moderator who will introduce our panel and lead us into our conversation. Father Patrick Gilger is completing his doctorate at the New School for Social Research in New York City. He will join the sociology faculty at Loyola University Chicago this coming fall and is contributing editor for Culture at America Media. Father Patty, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Michael. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I wanna say good morning to all of you who are here with us or perhaps good afternoon. I know Patricia is joining us from uh, overseas and maybe some of you else are, are as well. Um, my name, as Michael said, is Father Patrick Gilger. I'm really delighted to welcome you to our event this morning. Um, democracy, the topic of our conversation today is a, a, both a self-evident term. We all know in some ways what it is. And at the same time, it can be a little mysterious. It's like a plural concept that seems to slip out of our grasp sometimes right when we try to make a precise definition. This is in part because democracy uh, is more than one thing. Maybe we can describe it just quickly today in three ways. First, democracy is certainly a system. It's a pragmatic mode of ordering our government through voting and through representation and through laws, we know it. But it's also an identity. Um, we understand ourselves as equal members of a republic. In a democracy, we're peers who govern ourselves but in addition to being a set of institutions and something of an identity democracy is also a goal for us it's something we get closer to realizing as we ourselves or other people come to participate in this self-governing equal institution more fully but as a goal democracy is not only something that we can move closer to it's also something that we can drift away from or move farther from. And that is what brings us a bit to our topic for this morning's conversation on the fragility of our democracy. As our event description noted, it seems to many, perhaps to some of you, that we're facing crises of democracy that are perhaps more powerful than any we've seen in a generation. Inequality that continues at a galloping pace, policing systems that are increasingly racialized or militarized, and political decision-making that can appear remote or divorced from the lives of everyday citizens and ordinary people. So our conversation today really has two prominent goals. First is to understand something of our present context, to, to come to grips with it a bit more fully. How did we get here? And how can we understand what some of these fragilities are? The second goal is to perhaps widen and deepen our political imagination so that we can respond in a more hopeful, a more ambitious, a more challenging way to these deep problems that are facing us. And we're gonna pursue these dual goals today in discussion with some really eminent authors, um, the authors of two new books. The first will be Professor Jason Blakely of Pepperdine University. And his his book is called We Built Reality. The second are professors Patricia Nance and Charles Taylor, and we'll be discussing their book, Reconstructing Democracy, as well. And we're going to do our best to put these two books into dialogue with one another. And I think they make for an interesting pairing, both because of what they share and what they do not. They share a similar understanding, for example, of some of the things that ail our democracy, economic and social inequality, the divide between elites and citizens the dominance of what is sometimes called a technocratic mindset. But they also differ in interesting ways, particularly in that uh, Professor Blakely's work, Jason's work, provides a diagnosis of what has fragilized our democracy, how we got here. It gives us something of an origin story, perhaps. While Professors Nance and Taylor Patricia and Charles provide ways of responding to this fragility. Theirs is a storytelling endeavor that's on the ground and exemplary, it's true, of ways that uh, communities and organizations are building democracy in the midst of this fragile context. Notably, in a time when our political conversations, when they even happen, are often reduced to a discussion of how parties can obtain or maintain control Today, we are here to talk about something a bit different, how our political climate got this way and what we might do about it before and beneath or beyond our everyday understandings of democracy. I must say that for my own part, it's already been a pleasure engaging with these authors and with their books and with the ideas that they communicate. I admit to being very excited for these authors to share with you all a sense of how they understand these fragilities of our democracies and how we might respond to them so it's in light of that that i'd like to turn to our panelists today first to professor jason blakely jason i'd really like to welcome you to our event this morning i'm really excited to hear from you and maybe just an opening salvo of a question would you be willing just to introduce us to the argument of your book how we built reality excuse me we built reality and help us understand something of how technocracy and maybe xenophobia relate to your diagnosis of our crisis today.
1: Yes, thank you very much, uh, Father Paddy. I'm, I'm happy to do that. And thank you to the organizers, and particularly my co-panelists, Patricia and Charles, whose scholarship I, I greatly admire. I have to say very quickly that I first read Charles's A Secular Age when I was still a graduate student at UC Berkeley in 2007. And at the time, I was an art and atheist who liked to repeat the Nietzschean aphorism, thou shalt not lie killed God. In other words, there was no intellectually honest way to be a theist and reading Charles's book just exploded the credibility of that aphorism in my mind. Um, so yeah, we built reality in a, in a nutshell, if, if, I can, if I can try to do that, the main move that the book makes uh, before I get to answering your question, is it tries to turn the tables on on the word object relationship that's typical in the social sciences. I think that oftentimes uh, their habits of mind and reading that come from the natural sciences, where we read the social sciences as though the the object of study out there is in a kind of splendid isolation, if you like, from the word or theory that we um, develop about it. So for instance, if you read a description of the stars or constellations, whether that description is right or wrong, it doesn't actually change the uh, placement of the stars or the constellations. By contrast, I wanted to take up in the book, uh, I wanted uh, an interpretive or hermeneutic perspective. And by the way, no one this side of uh, Gadamer has taught us more about hermeneutics and interpretivism than Charles. Uh, But I want to take up an interpretive perspective in which social science is a set of meanings. And if you see social science as a set of meanings, then what starts to become apparent is that the word-object relationship is different. The descriptions and theories can actually enter into identities, self-understandings, and even radical restructurings of the entire world we live in, the social world we live in. In some ways, We Built Reality is a mass of these Analyses of these examples of what I call double H effects or double hermeneutic effects in which the description, the word, the theory in the social sciences as meanings actually entered into um, the self-understandings and the structurings of social reality itself. Now, in terms of your question, um, there are a bunch of different double H effects in the book. I talk about computational theory of mind, algorithmic dating, uh, drone warfare, managerial work managerialized workplaces, um, but I think there are two cluster areas where I'll give just a few brief examples that um, I hope complement Patrizia's and Charles's um, superb little volume on reviving democracy they talk about two corruptive traditions to democracy, hierarchicalized traditions. The first being what they call neoliberalism. In We Built Reality, I don't use the word neoliberalism, I use the term the market polis, in part because I'm concerned there, not just with self-conscious Reaganism and Thatcherism, but with a shift in social imaginary, where we view society, not so much as a democratic community per se, but more so as a kind of uh, market or economic activity. Now, an example of a double H effect I go into in quite a bit of detail in terms of the market polis is a rational choice theory, which is the sort of model or idealized conception of agency that comes out of neoclassical economics. It's an axiomatized um, notion of rationality in which certain things are said stipulatively to hold, for instance, um, completeness of preferences, transitivity of preferences. But the basic point for the general audience is that um, there's a notion of selfhood that um, comes out of these models in which human beings are mostly preference maximizing. um, Oftentimes, uh, even though it's not explicitly stated, materially acquisitive. Uh, So this is a kind of notion of human beings as mostly market actors. And the double, one of the double H effects I talk about, I talk about a lot of them, but one of the double H effects that I talk about is the way that at the popular level, when these theories get vulgarized, these meanings get vulgarized and come into the, the life world, if you will, um, you end up with certain slogans. For instance, a government is always inefficient. Or I talk quite a bit about the school voucher movement um, and the effort in the United States uh, to marketize the public school system. And the reason that's done is it said that'll be more, both more equitable and more efficient. Now, if you press people popularly, why do you, how do you know that government is always inefficient or that if you marketize public school systems, they'll lead to more equity and efficiency, which, by the way, seems to be empirically false. But if you press people, why do you think this is true? They'll tell you, well, there's a science that says it. There's, a, there's an account, an explanatory account of who we are. Um, where we're kind of like self-interested agents. And so you can kind of predict outcomes. And so the double H effect is that we've actually radically restructured our sense of selfhood where we become more like um, the neoclassical model there. Uh, We become more like these kinds of creatures as we attempt to say reform the school system or, or roll back government, austerity, et cetera. Another really quick example, if I may, from neoliberalism is more of a social metaphysics. I talk in the book about the invention of a discursive concept, the economy um, that you hear, particularly in American political discourse, beginning in say the eighties and nineties with the definite article, the economy is in, we all know what we're referring to just as a descriptive concept. So there's the sort of social science theory. It often includes things like GDP, unemployment rate, other things are excluded, homelessness, uh, entrenched poverty, ecological devastation, those don't count as part of the economy. Again, as these get vulgarized, as these meanings get embodied into practices, um, you get into say like different discourses in the news or among the political class in the United States, where you'll lasso, you'll lasso the economy in a kind of correlation, or maybe you'll fudge it and say it's a causation with say incumbency or the presidency, and you'll say, hey, this president really ran the economy extremely well. And you'll even have a reductive notion of the whole concept of voting your um, pocketbook, such that you might even end up in a place where you say, hey, he or she is a white nationalist, but look what a great job they did with the economy. And what you end up with is an entire different practice of statecraft that's more like market craft built around a supposedly objective descriptive claim but that actually excludes in its social metaphysics, other aspects of political life. Um, so that's one, set, that's one tradition of economic hierarchy that's kind of corroding um, uh, our democracy, our democratic participation. The other one, which I'll do much more briefly that are, is discussed by Patricia and by Charles is the whole notion of ethno-nationalism, uh, exclusive populism. Um, in We Built Reality, I have an entire chapter on policing race and crime and one of the stories i try to tell in that chapter is how in the 19th century there was the notion of a natural born criminal but in the 20th century uh, social science shifted to something a lot more subtle which was just a statistical conception of criminality where you had certain behavioral inputs social genetic uh, personal history that were said to sort of um, stack if you had enough of these inputs you could stack Uh, the probability of someone being criminal so high that it almost became, they became hopelessly criminal just as a probabilistic thing. I'm thinking here of social scientists like Charles Murray, James Q. Wilson, who were extremely influential social scientists in their day. The double H effect here, so there you have like a descriptive set of claims about um, criminal behavior, was the popular notion in the United States that became so big in the 1990s of the predator note the naturalist language there of of a kind of biologized notion. The predator was often a um, racialized other, a black or Hispanic male, it wasn't said out loud, who was so statistically hopelessly criminal that the only thing you could do is enact um, certain types of policing that were highly militarized. After all, if you're dealing with a quasi-animal, then maybe you need a SWAT team, maybe you need a more militarized police, maybe you need incapacitation policing methods, which is what actually Murray and Wilson advocated for. Things like um, chokeholds, uh, even the notion of mass incarceration, what they were fighting against was the notion that a rehabilitative model of crime. Um, you know, if you've got someone who social scientifically supposedly is so hopelessly criminal, then it's naive to try to educate them out of it. So that's a little bit brief, but then you end up with a whole notion of like reading racial bodies as shorthand for the statistical propensity to crime. And you've got the inauguration of a kind of world making there, a double H effect, mass incarceration, uh, the militarization of police, things we've seen this summer in a very dramatic and sad way in the United States. So uh, that. That's a lot, but the basic upshot is, and I wanna make clear here, there's a lot more that's ailing our democracy than just technocracy. But Mm -hmm. neoliberalism and exclusive xenophobic uh, populism both have, if you like, technocratic um, wellsprings that can help establish it as a sort of order of economic hierarchy and of of racial hierarchy uh, that go against sort of participatory democracy.
0: Jason, thank you for those opening statements really helpful for us to begin to get a grip on uh, some of the fragilities that we're facing here. Um, Professor Taylor, I'd like to turn to you, Charles, um, to uh, invite you to join our conversation here, you can unmute yourself. And I'd like to ask um, if you could give us a sense of how you and and Patricia understand some of these same problems that uh, that Jason has described for us. Um, I know that in your book you give uh, you give a really uh, a beautiful set of stories about democracy being reconstructed from the ground level all over the world, and and uh, it's really beautiful to read those things. Could you help us understand how you to understand those fragilities of democracy and how those storytelling uh, responds mm-hmm. to it and maybe expands our political imagination a bit in the light of some of these challenges?
2: Yeah. And I think there is a tremendous overlap between our book and, and Jason's, and <clears throat> very evidently. But let me come at it this way. I mean, what we call populism today, I think it's a bad word, but let's I can't go into that. We haven't got time to go into that. But, you know, Trump, Marine Le Pen, uh, Salvini in Italy and so on, is really uh, based on the fact that a lot of people in our Western democracies have had their standard of living decline, their children aren't getting the same kind of jobs they had, not just people and classes, but also certain areas, you know, losing losing economic activity, et cetera, to very larger and larger central cities. And this has been recruited by what people call populism. That is the idea that this is all really the fault of, in some sense or other outsiders, I mean, maybe, Fault of other countries like China, or fault of immigrants who are trying to get in, or fault the fault of immigrants who are already here and dragging us down, or and that's a, this is very important. You know, a lot of societies where there's a kind of caste-like understanding that some people should come first and some other people second and other people third, like the U.S. and the, with the unfortunate racial history, or all settler societies in relation to aboriginals or some European societies who had uh, empires and then a lot of people from the empire like in France and UK have come in. There's a sense of sort of hierarchy. So the idea is that you appeal to people in sort of middle of the hierarchy. saying that the people that are on the bottom are getting a lot of privileges which you should be uh, given. And the corrupt elites are people who favor those uh, people on the Uh, lower level as against you honest uh, Americans or Brits or, or French and so on. And now one of the there's many many reasons for this but one of the conditions of it all working is total opacity of the democratic political system. And it wasn't always opaque. By opacity I mean what levers do I use to change the situation? What can I do to make the government listen to me, pay attention, work on my problem, right? It's a question of levers. So if you like, the opacity goes along with what I want to call a sense of citizen inefficacy or a lack of citizen efficacy, the sense that we can't do anything about this. And very often at certain phases, you get that expressed in a drop in the Participation. People, you know, from election to election, a smaller percentage of people actually participate. And we see in the latter half latter decades of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, this decline going on and on until the populists come on scene and people begin to vote more again, but they vote for Trump or for Le Pen and so on, right? Now Of course, the great unspoken secret of all this is that the the remedies recommended by Trump and Japan, apart from being, you know, ethically repulsive, actually wouldn't help, (laughs) actually, you know, Trump managed to try to wreck Obamacare and (laughs) cut the taxes on the rich, which is very far from helping the people that actually voted for him. So that's another point that the problem is opacity. And so how to cure this? Well, now there are many, many facets of that, and uh, we can't go into all of them. We live in these awful uh, echo chambers. This is partly the split in the so-called legitimate media between, let's say, Fox and CNN, but partly also the importance of social media. So we get this incredible growth of utterly fantastic pictures of the universe and pictures of the other and the enemy and so on. Now, how to best combat this? And our conviction is you best combat this not by more good theory, I mean, it helps have good theory, but by mobilizing. If you can mobilize people around certain goals that really mean something to them and show them that turning out in larger numbers behind these goals will actually produce effects, then you can give them a sense again that, yeah, I know what levers to pull, what organizations are doing, what, what mobilizations to back. But this this has to happen on the global level, on the national level, if you like, of the, the, the whole electorate. But now our, now we're getting to our book. Our book says, but just a minute, think. This should also happen on the local level because there are things that can be done on the local level that can't be done uh, simply on the national level. And we have the two kinds of ways to create, what's the difference in opacity? Transparency, two two ways to create greater transparency and greater sense of what the levers are. One is the organization of a local community. Let's say all the jobs have moved out and what are we gonna do and so on. And sometimes people just feel it's helpless and until you know the big uh, uh, leader appeals to them and they vote for that leader. But sometimes people get together and they start to meet and they talk to each other and they try to work out what they really feel is wrong, and then they try to work out with some advice of maybe experts what alternative sources of, of uh, employment, for instance, might be. And they so several things begin to happen. First of all, they begin to get to know each other and trust each other so that you get, in the American case, it may be Democrats and Republicans or not, who suddenly cease to be the other, but become people that they know and they can collaborate with. And secondly, they have a, begin to have a program. And thirdly, they begin to have a sense of what to do about this program I mean, whether you know, maybe badgering, maybe do some of the things themselves but maybe badger the state government or the federal government and so on to give them help. They know exactly what to ask for. In other words, they can't be fobbed off, you know, vote for me and I'll fight the Chinese and that'll solve your problem. No, they know it will solve their problem and they, <clears throat> they push for it, right? And another way, and Patricia will talk about this a great deal more than me because she's really one of the experts on it. She's published uh, in Germany on it is to get together consultative bodies, very often chosen to represent a little bit the diversity of the population, who then sit down and talk about these issues. Now, in both these kinds of media, there's something very important happening that the partners or you know, discussion partners are not, some strange other which has all these horrible qualities that you everybody knows they have, but are actual flesh and blood human beings, and you, you get to know them, and you get to understand what makes them tick. And um, so that's very important. And the other thing is that you actually manage in that situation to work out uh, viable solutions, or let's say very often a, a range of possible solutions between which the whole electorate can choose later, but they actually, you know, they have something to be said for them and arguments for them and so on. And thirdly, and this is a tremendously important, you actually get people to come to understand each other. Because one of the most tragic things in our world today is the way people caricature the other, completely caricature and think that they've got an understanding of it. Whereas we all know when you bring some of these people together from these other these tribes, all these things break down and they get a sense of well, what exactly moves this other person. And a lot of the things that moves them may be repulsive to me, but I can understand where they're coming from. And that makes a whole difference, not just to how I can relate to them and how we can relate to each other, but actually how I how we can actually operate in a political society to restore this. You know, the kind of democracy that Hannah Arendt was talking about, that in other words, we talk to each other, really get to listen to each other, and we can work out together in mutual respect what the best solution is for all of us. So, I mean, to sum up, the, what we're tackling is this opacity factor, right, which is a necessary condition of these uh, populists, as people call them, operating. And we're saying that it has to be tackled on the national level, yes, but also on the local level or in smaller groups, especially chosen for that in order to produce the, the elements that can allow us to re- make democracy again, really work.
0: Excellent, thank you very much, Charles, beautiful. Um, Patricia. I'd love to invite you to join our conversation now as well, um, welcome. Um, In light of what we've heard here, we heard a little bit from Jason about the diagnosis of one particularly deep set of problems, of this misunderstanding that social science that imitates natural science can produce in us. And then we heard a little bit from Charles about how uh, you understand these responses to a particular form of opacity uh, happening in our democracy today on the local level there and maybe growing into some national levels. We'd love to hear from you, if you would, some concrete cases from your own work about how you're seeing democracy being reconstructed how these things serve as perhaps a living response to these, the opacity that's produced and the misunderstanding of one another, and maybe even of ourselves.
3: Well, thank you very much, uh, Father Patrick. I would like to return to your um, introduction. You said that democracy has different layers or levels. Uh, It's a system. It's a question of identity. It's a goal. And I would, I would stress the fact that uh, as we see with the pandemic uh, of the coronavirus, there is uh, an increasing sort of um, sort of dysfunctional uh, working of the government, where it's clear that the the capacity of handling not only the pandemic but other conflicts and other questions we have to tackle uh, is is really in in danger. Uh, not only for the pandemic, but for many for the climate change, for many complex issues. So that's a, it's, it's a question of um, capacity of steering at the system level. Uh, as Charles said, of course. Within uh, communities, of course, it's a question how you tackle the, the gaps between um, the, the different uh, social groups, the conflicts you have, and how you get to a shared identity of a political community. And then you have, of course, the question of a goal being improvi- uh, improving democracy even further. Um, so I would like to say that, um, that there are two main uh, reasons why we uh, went to look at the local level. One is because it seems that federal political government is much more unable to solve problems than at the local level. So the real problems are really at the local level and some, they would need to sort of tickle upwards from the bottom so that political, uh, the political realm at the federal level would be able to learn from all these different uh, solutions at the bottom because it's, it's very abstract and they very seldom see what they uh, what the consequence of, of federal politics is for the local communities. So it has a sort of a, um, it's a question of being more efficient if you want. And if you look at the COVID uh, pandemic uh, in the US, you can also see that not only because of Trump, uh, the flaws of the US government has been a sort of, also there's a counterpart on local uh, solutions from citizens, self-organized, which is a lot to uh, to help uh, learning from local successes and increase the capacity to, to govern uh, the pandemic. Uh, and um, uh, a colleague of ours in, in Harvard, Akon Fung, made a point that if you would have this bottom up decentralized learning, you would have a much better idea of how to tackle these questions. Um, but let me come to concrete uh, stories we also mentioned in our books. Uh, well, I mean, there are. First of all, it's it's important to understand that there are different traditions between the US and Europe. Uh, While in in the US, um, I believe that um, citizen participation is very much uh, um, grassroots uh, um, self-organization of communities, and the state doesn't play a big role. In, In Europe, the state plays a much bigger role, not only in Germany, but in many other countries. And this is important because of course it's a totally different uh, question whether you self organize citizens around questions and then you push local authorities or your local leader um, for a certain solution rather than um, an organized, for example, randomly uh, selected bunch of people uh, um, trying to find solutions for big problems. Um, and for the second, I just give you a an, an question or an, an example of Ireland where the first um, sort of very famous uh, citizen assembly took place in 2013 and then 15 and 16 Uh, and it was about the most prominent example was about amendment of the Constitution for the same sex marriage, which was a hugely controversial issue in the Catholic island and politics didn't have the courage to face this, this problem. And through this uh, randomly selected citizen assembly with around hundred citizens, they really managed to come to, uh, to a consensus nearly, or at least more than two thirds of the, not only of the citizen assembly, but then in the referendum, it was the exact number of the population uh, to be for an amendment of the constitution and for same sex uh, marriage. So this is a way how it really worked because the government and parliament in particular was very much involved in the design, and also there was a strong political will for participation. This is very, very rare. We just saw in France the same thing happening on climate issues. It was a exemplary uh, process, very well done, with 150 um, randomly selected citizens. They brought uh, very important and very thoughtful um, results. Uh, And now the problem is that it was only um, President Macron who was for this, citizen assembly and uh, in the end there's a struggle between different players within the government and parliament and it's a very big question whether they will really do something with the with these results. So this is decredibilizing the whole question of participation and that's why I think uh, uh, Charles and and I uh, went to see at the local level because their are um, mayors and uh are really the ones who are willing to um to tackle problems and if they really want participation uh then the the chances are much higher Then this will function also for the community but also for politics um and so for example all the uh examples we know from uh now in many cities paris or montpellier and so on but in germany as well and in small cities they really Uh, are able to to make a a process as such that, at the end, they have a valuable way of of tackling issues. And then this makes not only the mayors, but all the representatives much stronger. So, in fact, what we are asking for is to have a network of all these kinds of processes, self-organized and uh, top-down organized, so that in the end, perhaps, we have something like a fourth branch of state power with in-depth consultations to make politics better and to make democracy livelier, and also to tackle uh, the question of uh, of isolation, individualism, and and um, and people who are separate. Because I think that uh, that really talking to each other uh, deserves a, a kind of cooperation and empathy, which otherwise encounters don't. And so it's really a question also of citizenship uh, practices, which are uh, sort of strengthened through this kind of um, experimental uh, um, participation. Thank you.
0: Patrizia, beautiful. Thank you so much. Jason, maybe we could return to you just for a moment there. Uh, Patricia and Charles have offered us this really beautiful uh, set of stories about how democracy may be able to, shorn up, to be shorn up again, this idea of trickling up from the local uh, collaboration with um, national governments, the, maybe even the construction of a fourth branch of state power that can uh, institute or start cultivate for us some practices of citizenship that can counterbalance or work against the, the vectors of isolation that the market polis maybe induces us into um i have a sense that your your interpretation of the situation is maybe a little bit more dire um is that true and if if uh, do you think that these kinds of responses are sufficient or possible to deal with a little bit of the the crisis that we're facing and if not what kind of solutions might we look to to um, confront some of the problems facing us
1: well first I'm hugely sympathetic to i'm a participatory um, small d, Democrat. Um, so I, I think that the whole Tocquevillian notion that you need schools of democracy at the local level, essential uh, to reviving democracy. No disagreement there. If I were looking for a disagreement, um, I would say that, uh, and it might be just a difference of emphasis, and it might honestly be that I'm in the United States, and is <laughs> and in Germany, and, and Charles is in Quebec, and let, should we just say it? Uh, we're a lot less healthy right now as a as a civil society in those places not to idealize them and a lot of the problems echo across but we we are not well and one of the ways to get at we're not well that concerns me is that at the local level one of the things that's trickled down is a way of talking so i think there's um i'm interested by this notion of techno populism that some scholars have started to use by which they sort of are trying to break down the notion that technocracy or rule by this kind of epistemic attempt, mission impossible, by the way, to reduce human agency to mechanism, um, it doesn't just exist up here amongst elites talking. Now, historically, it might have started there, but there's actually, particularly in the United States, you look at something like the Tea Party, um, the, the call is for a kind of technocratic conception of the market. I think there's an opacity there that Charles was talking about really in an interesting way to me. Um, where people don't understand that the market doesn't spontaneously happen, that in fact, states engineer and create markets in all sorts of ways. Um, but, but the concern for me is at the cultural level, um, I'm worried that in the United States, the schools of democracy um, at the local level it, it are calling for, um, so what's trickled down, if you will, is not wealth, but a way of talking has trickled down. Um, one more point here is the neoliberal side, but in the xenophobic side, There's this sociologist at UCLA, Aaron Panofsky. He's got this term I find helpful called astrological genetics. He argues that there's within um, this xenophobic tradition, there's a way of reading bodies that's kind of super, not kind of, it's superstitious. I mean, if you used to be born under the sign, say, Libra or Leo, now you're born under the sign Black or Hispanic or white. And what people are doing at the popular level is actually sort of reading bodies um for content like for higher order capacities and things like that so i also worry about this kind of upsurgent i would call it um a folk naturalism to use a term that charles has taught us so much about um you know so I- I'm, I'm concerned about the ways in the united states that there's a problem of education to put it briefly there's a problem of education yes we need schools of democracy locally but you look at some of the insurgent movements here and they are upward but they're sort of calling for things that look to me like the reassertion of hierarchy. Um, Some of those things can be unlearned because like Tokyo says, you cooperate with your neighbor, you realize you have shared problems, you're disoriented, your ideologies put aside. But some of these things, I mean, you look at like the Tea Party um, and it's not so clear that we don't have a problem that needs to start at the level of the universities, uh, at the level of the schools, um, almost an educational movement, uh, I would say, as well as a problem of leisure, frankly, Americans have much less leisure uh, I say that sadly than Europeans and Canadians do. So we're just trying to survive a lot of us, um, the market polis, and we don't really have time to do the toe thing,
0: you know? Anyway, leave it there. Jason, thank you. Um, Charles, this idea of uh, the stories that you tell, I mean, in some ways, uh, the the critic the critic in me is tempted to say well wow, these are just idealized examples but the fact of the matter is that they're not like the the stories you tell in the book are are from the ground level of actual cases where uh, communities are gathering together on their own or sometimes with the help of outside outside sources um, to construct some of these spaces of democratic education that Jason is both attracted to and maybe a little uh, tendentious, you know, nervous around and hopeful for, but um, anything that you're seeing there about the requirements for those those things as schools of democracy, I know that you, in your book you guys reference very carefully the, the need for trained mediators, some local experts, some outside experts, anything there that will help us from a cultural level kind of build that yeah. identity as participatory citizens again so that you could help us understand.
2: Yeah, I mean, in this, uh, it's a shame that uh, Maddie couldn't join us because, you know, they have an unfortunate accident because she's the one who's done a lot of work precisely in organizing in the United States. But, see, I think think that both the kinds of gettings together that we're describing and the ones that Jason is describing are happening at the same time. But I mean, the, the, the people are definitely organizing around white supremacy. We can, <laughs> what happened on January the 6th was a lot of very, you know, very good grassroots, or good in the sense of a vector, grassroots organization. So it is a matter of different kinds of coming together. The thing is the kind that, let's say keep in the States, the kind that Maddie is talking about is where people, uh, you you have to select to tackle the problem are people from lots of different media and background because they have the expertise, the insight, the knowledge, and, or you need to consent in order to get a plan together and send it up, right? The kind of getting together that led all the people into the Capitol on uh, January the 6th was the getting together of people who are sharing the same bubble, the same myth, same hatreds and so on. And my my conviction is that one of the ways of defeating that bad kind of mobilization is to get people involved in the other kind of mobilization, where the people they need to speak to and get the consent for and hear the advice of are just anybody who has something to say or some influence in the local community who can actually put together a solution, and that forces them out of their, uh, what is the word, bubble, echo chamber, and so on. And my one of my convictions is that, I mean, it's very important to work out the intellectual reasons, and I've, I must say I'm tremendously inspired by Jason's book and the way he works through <laughs> uh, in detail a lot of the ways in which this totally objectifying, clunking way of understanding human beings actually is not just helpless and not telling us anything, but is actually telling us something that we shouldn't be believing. But um, we need, and we definitely need that. But in order to, yes, you have to cut this kind of existential change in people's lives where they start, they're forced to start talking to people from the other bubble, and they can't get what they want without uh, some, some exchange. And that's what's going to break it down. I mean, I think that there's, there's, I have to mention there's something I think deeper always going on here. When you look at uh, things like Martin Luther King and, and uh, John Lewis and so on, they really had an insight that the people that were making li- their lives very difficult were themselves to be uh, pitied in a certain sense, they themselves, they're, they're imprisoned in this kind of idea that the blacks are lower and, and I gotta hang on to that and I gotta keep them down there and so on. And and it's also haunted by, if you see in the, the whole history of the white South, they're haunted by the fact that knowing what they've done to these people, what these people must wanna do to them is pretty terrible, so we gotta hold them, et cetera. These things are imprisoning and uh, how do you get people out of that? And you can't just preach at them from a great height, right? So uh, the, the way to do it is to allow it to break through. I mean, to have that kind of theory and insight operating, you know, it's one of expression by uh, Lewis, put down the burden of hatred. You know, it's a burden, it's crushing you. Right? And, but in order to get that through, you have to, Talk to people outside that bubble, and all, I think all of this is working. And you, that you know, the great Black Lives Matter demonstrations that happened after uh, the terrible murder of George Floyd are examples, I think, of that kind of thing spreading. Right? Uh, it's getting people to flip over and see it in this other perspective, and I think that the kind of thing we're talking about can help that happen.
0: Beautiful, yeah, beautiful. The starting these, um, I'm reminded very much of something you know I've read in your in your work of the only that the only way we can convince people uh, to change their minds is to tell them a better story of their own experiences, and um, I, I hear something of that John Lewis tendency in there, that the beautiful admiration that we have for people who become capable of doing this at some point. Um, Patricia, I thought we might turn to you for a moment and and noting that enormous challenge that we're facing there, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the contrast between the different contexts within which this happens. And I'm wondering this both with regard to media context, the fragmentation of our media ecosystem, which makes it so difficult uh, to gather people's attention to begin some of these kinds of conversations here. There are so many appeals to our identity that press against the kinds of uh, uh, values that we may want to have in a participatory democracy. But also the difference between the European and the American context, that knowing that the European experience is itself very, diff- very different, we'd love to see some examples. Now, maybe John Lewis is an example of a possible you know, response within the European system. Are there are there examples within Europe that can be responses here for us or anything that you're seeing there in your own expertise?
3: Yeah, thank you very much. I would like to um, just tell you a very st- brief story about the, the French um, Citizen Assembly. I mean, given that it was by ra- selected by random uh, and people would, were addressed who would not have dreamt to be part of a political movement or a political deliberation really, but they're accepted. Uh, so they would uh, also because it was of course President Macron, but he was able to mobilize. Uh, and what is interesting that the whole bunch of 150 people had to re- somehow represent all France, regionally, but also in questions of age, uh, gender, but also education. And the, uh, the people who are lesser, uh, with a lower education were a little bit overrepresented, was very rare. Usually it's the opposite, right? And what happened is first people started to became, uh, to become an ex- experts on climate change over the year they had worked on these issues. And, and being political and being engaged in things which they have never dreamt of before, and they continue to do so now they will go back to their regional uh, you know, uh, assemblies and, and and continue their work now uh, voluntarily. The second is that they they speak to each other uh, uh, coming from different milieus, and they would never have spoken to each other otherwise so uh, this is kind of a very um, mind-blurring experience of someone who cannot think of how this could happen, that people would talk to each other, which otherwise would never talk to each other. And they really work together for several months. So I think that's already something which is transformative for the people invited. But of course, you can say that's only 150, right? Uh, but this is also what's happening at local level, which is much easier, because you have to solve problems together. It's not something abstract. It's something very concrete. Um, And again, I I think that that's what the beauty is all about. When you see people turning around, having in resonance with each other. And I think Jason is right. I mean, of course, the um, technological and and digitalization and technological uh, process and progress does something with human beings. So it's not only technology. It becomes an infrastructure. An infrastructure of the political and the public sphere but also the infrastructure of our psyche if we don't pay attention to it, right? Uh, and this is very difficult to turn backwards. Um, but what I see is once these bubbles are unleashed, not only the bubbles of social media and people talking only to each other, but also the bu- the public of uh, Republicans or uh, Trump voters and, and so on and so forth, once they are uh, in a protected spaces, and that's very important because these, these spaces are protected. It's it's not, and it's usually they're protected by a certain atmosphere given by a moderator and so on. So you cannot become violent or being rude or something like that. Once this works, they're very happy to resonate with one each other because human beings want to resonate with one each other. And so I think that's sort of a natural human um, desire. And so I think the question is, as Charles says, how to, um, to, to go into a positive uh, and productive spiral rather than a negative and destructive spiral. And so I think you need many, many different examples and affect people because they, they, like, and be, and they like being engaged. They like being um, helpful. They like being efficient somehow and doing something uh, for the community. So I'm rather positive about that and I see the differences between the U.S. and um, and Europe. Uh, although, of course, I couldn't come to U.S. For, for the pandemic for for lots of time now. But um, and I think that's the the, the very preoccupying uh, question. I mean, to what extent do government and bad government in particular, like Trump's government, um, destroy the political culture, which is much deeper than just the government, right? But, I always think it can be reversed. It's a question of time and and effort. Um, I think I'll leave it at that.
0: Patricia, it's a beautiful response. Um I know that Charles was warning us away from the sole efficacy of preaching, but I feel like i'm on the I'm the recipient of a beautiful homily from you there. So thank you for the inspiring. I, I feel that. Uh, I feel that possibility, and and there isn't there is I I am very convinced, in fact, even though I know the the thinness some ways of of the efficacy of preaching in my own experience as a priest, but I still would I still do think there is something I feel in my own life of the efficacy of words. Um, one of the people that I always look to for the kinds of words that help me at least stay in these very tense, tensive, uh, fragile, fragmented situations that put me in tension. I often find myself looking, and it's mandatory for me to mention his name, Pope Francis these days, as a brother Jesuit of mine. And um, he's, I think, providing on a macro level, you know, a macro media sphere, such an example, I think, for me and many others of a space of hope, of mutual care, of listening for one another. Um, Some of you may have seen his recent book that he's, uh, he's written along with Austin Ivory called Let Us Dream, and it's a beautiful book that ends with a critique of both xenophobic populism and the technocracy that can divide you know, elites from uh, political elites from everyday citizens. And he holds up in response what he calls an inclusive populism, maybe something similar to the kind of democratic participation that we've been describing here a bit as a pathway forward for himself. Let me give you a brief quote, and I'll turn to a question. Um, In a post-COVID world, Pope Francis says, neither technocratic managerialism nor populism will suffice. Only a politics that is rooted in the people, open to the people's own organization, will be able to change the future. So uh, my question is, uh, does this seem like a viable path forward for us? I I want to be inspired by you and by Pope Francis, but I do see a a lot of these fragments there before us. Is it a hopeful path, a possible path? And also, what role does the Christian community—Catholic churches, parishes, um, our evangelical, Protestant brothers and sisters, Orthodox brothers and sisters, Muslims, and Jews—have in building this kind of community? Uh, maybe Professor Taylor first, Charles first.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, I think I'm. I was going to mention Pope Francis too. I mean, I think that there's nothing will beat getting people together. Uh, a word, there aren't. Where they don't choose their immediate affinity as the as the criterion, so you're forced to work with other people. On I don't mean force with a gun, but I mean uh, on very very important existential issues for all of you. You We want to we want to stop the most terrible consequences of climate change. We want to have a more equal, more uh, society with greater prosperity for everybody, and so on. So you're getting people to as it were see that they have to get together or in the case of that uh, what Patricia is talking about, you select you know uh, a representative sample and they have to talk to each other even if they I think that that is the only that's the only way to uh, reinvigorate democracy, but it's also the only way to create some kind of sanity and some kind of solidarity and sense of, of uh, belonging to the same society, and the these two things go go together, and you know that's why I think the the entire approach of the people that that Jason takes apart so well in his book, which all of which completely avoid they you know the passing through a real understanding of what moves people. Well, it's all some kind of trick that they find, or some kind of special lever that they find, right, which you can use either to predict crime or to get the most efficient uh, uh, market system or, or whatever, right? It's forcing people to meet and agree and talk about really important problems across barriers because they can't, they recognize I can't solve it alone or they're put together maybe by government in order to have people from all these areas and they have to solve it together and so i think that that is the i think Francis is absolutely right there this nothing restores democracy like democracy <laughs> like actually mobilizing to get something done
0: yeah thank you thank you um jason or patricia would either of you like to chime in there i can just add something i
3: would say two two words really um hope and creation in a sense that um i think that the the fact that we have very much presentism in our politics uh, instead you have to have long-term perspective and to uh, to see that the creation has to be preserved in in terms of the planet and the nature and so you you have much more long-term perspective that's one thing and you you have to, to to preserve and be respectful to, to, uh, to all the creatures really. I think that's one thing. And you have the hope that this can be done. This gives mu- you much more sort of resilience to what happens every day and to the things you see, which are not very pleasant always. Um, so you have the endurance because you have hope. I think that's for me is the the question part in it. Beautiful.
1: There was an inter- if I can just cut in, there was a really interesting part in your guys' book about long-term councils, which as an American citizen, we don't have, at least I'm not aware of this kind of democratic setup, Patricia, to what you're saying. Certain councils, that their point is to have kind of a long-term perspective on okay. deliberation, correct? Yes,
3: exactly. Yeah.
1: Because I think in some ways um, we're not really set up uh, politically, at least in the United States, to, to think that way. We think more in terms of election terms, um, I, w- I would just add really quickly that uh, in terms of, you know, a narrative has to fail you. It, once you kind of make the shift over into hermeneutics and interpretivism, um, even technocracy is just repressed meanings. It's repressed interpretations. Yeah. And so yeah. the story kind of, you have to be failed by your stories in some ways. And the question is like, how much damage do you do before your story, your bad story fails you, right? So if, if your view is I'm gonna marketize, um, I saw this in in the question thing, I'm not very good at multitasking, but someone said, hey, the evidence shows that uh, school choice is, is wonderful. It's working well. You can look in the book. I cite some studies that say that you know you have educational deserts, um, you have places where schools are shuttered and so on. We could have the argument about the empirics, but the point is like behind technocracy to me more more deeply is if you try to reduce people to mechanism, it's kind of a mission impossible. Um, so if I, if I try to read you racially, it actually fails me. It fails me. I, I think I'm I think you're this, I think you're that, but then I misunderstand you badly um, and something goes wrong for me. So I think that there's a sense in which the stories um, have to fail and kind of hit a rock bottom. Um, what that looks like and what it looks like to accompany people um, to the point about Pope Francis, um, accompany people who are are living stories that maybe we see as, as confused. Um, that's a big question I think for the churches and uh, and for and for de- uh, participatory democracy, I was really intrigued by this notion of an ethnographic um, facilitator that Charles and Patricia talk about. So I think there's an issue there of how you um, accompany people who are living, uh, maybe partial stories or distorted stories where they're in part onto something, but a lot of it is maybe wrongheaded.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful, Jason. Thank you. Um, I would do. You're already turning us in the direction that I was hoping to turn with uh, to some of the questions and answers that our audience here has posed. Um, Jason, we'd like to. I'd like to stay with you. Um, there are two questions. One from Jim Perry, and another from Carlos Ramirez-Cacho. Um, the first is this. there, they're a little connected. The first that Jason asks, or Jim asks. Excuse me can the market model be essentially correct and only an extreme form uh, lead to social problems? Is it the case that that could be be true? And a related question from Carlos, uh, is it the case that social science can be used to implement anti-racist and anti-populist measures precisely through these technocratic means that we're uh, criticizing here today? Ought we to rule out efforts to do so uh, beforehand? So responses to those kinds of questions would be lovely, Jason.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no escaping kind of contestability of political life. So when someone says, isn't there a way that markets can just resolve our problems? My answer is there are a lot of ways of organizing human society and being human and already built into that is sort of, there's, there's an objective way to resolve our problems that's scientific. Uh, whereas if you like markets are, are an organization of meanings and in a way of living out society that we can ask ourselves and deliberate over, we need to democratize them more, basically. They're not, I talk about this with policing too. I think one of the reasons that uh, militarized police has become self-evident in the United States, I mean, you take a photograph of a police officer 50 years ago in this country and today, I think it would astonish my grandparents what a police officer looks like today. Um, they're not alive to see it. What happened? We're, we view it as just the scientific way of policing in some ways, it's inescapable. Um, so. I sense they're kind of like realism um, in, the, in the bad sense of like, there's only one way to have a society. I think unfortunately, or fortunately, I would say, it, it always falls back on us to have the discussion. So then we could have the discussion, is there a role for for economic activity that's organized around the profit motive? Yes or no? We could come out more or less radicalized positions across the board. There could be a lot of respectable positions, to be honest with you, I mean, we're human beings groping around in the darkness. but. What I don't like and what I do object to philosophically is to sort of like scientifically um, christen one of the options as the only realistical way to realistic way to have a society, mm-hmm. um, and in that sense, we need more imagination and more experimentation with the kinds of models that Patricia and Charles Taima, Um, And that's actually a question I had in their book: is what about the democratization of the economy? There's a lot of talk about the democratization of, of like political life, but what about like democratizing the workplace? Now that would make me sound on the more radical side, but um, those questions should be deliberated on and
0: not just set as the scientific
1: way of being human.
0: Excellent. Um, Patricia. we have a question for you from uh, Christoph Oldbay. And he asks, um, corporate news sources have financial incentives for scandal and for spectacle and populist leaders often feed off of this kind of mania. How does this affect political discourse at the expense of the kind of localism that you and Charles hold uh, forth on? Um, what measures, if any, can be offered to counterbalance uh, this kind of cycle of media
3: work? That's a very good question. And in fact, I think that's one of the reasons why the, um, the Citizen Assembly in France has many problems right now, because it can be shown, and research has shown that uh, the citizens who worked for nine months in the weekends uh, have been, how can I say, influenced by uh, some in influential um, economic players, uh, at least a couple of them. And also at the, at the ministerial end, uh, the ministers have, uh, have been influenced by industry not to amend the, the results of the assembly. So it's very difficult to, to work with that. Um, of course, if, if you have one assembly at federal level, that's, it's much easier uh, to be done because they, people see uh, that it would be a, a sort of a bunch of people who can be influenced in the old sense of, so it's not a protected space, but the old idea of aggregation of interests uh, comes up again and they think they can go into that. But I think uh, in the book, um, we, we turn to the local level because there it's much more unlikely. Uh, people usually uh, solve problems which are very concrete. Uh, and by the way, I think too, that's, uh, that's to Jason's point. I think at the local level, when it comes to tackle concrete problems, people don't buy the, uh, the stories of the market policies uh, and the economy anymore because they see it doesn't fit. Uh, both of them don't fit anymore to their realities they live by. So I think at the local level, it's much easier because it's not so much a deliberation, it's much more how to to solve problems together. Mm -hmm. And that's another mode. It's really creating solutions rather than deliberating uh, in a a sort of argumentative way. And there it's much less um, prone to to lobbyism or or big influence of of, uh, important and influential players.
0: Thank you, Patrizio. Charles, we have a question from uh, David McPherson and Armand Babakanyam. And they ask, uh, much of our discussion today has focused on the problems of the political right. Are there trends on the political left that are also problematic for the kinds of participatory democracy that we're discussing? Some have suggested, for example, that an ideology of wokeism can become class-based, or it can make living in a pluralistic society more difficult because it tends to scapegoat um can that and that can lead to greater plur- polarization do you agree with this assessment and are there problems that you would see on the left as well and any uh, responses that you may want to offer to that
2: oh yeah i mean <clears throat> that I mean the people that react against certain kinds of discrimination can also simply get themselves onto a sort of moral level and condemn the others and that does very little to change to change these people right so it really requires on both sides a kind of understanding of the other, where you can put together being repelled by what they're trying to do on one hand, but also coming to understand humanly why they got to this position, what are other factors of their life which are perfectly legitimate that they somehow molded into this position. Like, I mean, you know, the kind of people who are voting for MAGA and uh, for uh, Trump in Appal- Appalachia and so on, who can really fail to understand if you you had a job, but your kids can only get these small precarious jobs that they, or the, the younger person themselves, they can't feed their family and so on, who can uh, fail to understand that if you really listen for a while, right? So then you get a complicated picture of people that are both on some level acting in a morally monstrous way, in your view, but on the other level they're actually human beings. So it's really, if you want to speak in terms of the academy, we need to have more of what I call the ethnographic mindset. I mean, I'm very impressed, for instance, with a book like Arlie Hochschild's uh, *Strangers in a Strange Land*. I don't know if people have read that. She went from Berkeley, California, to to Florida, and she lived with a lot of people who were very much Trump voters, et cetera, Except that Trump had didn't exist yet, but that kind of thing. She just listened to them, and she produced a kind of understanding of why of what they what they think, and you can see both the human reasons for this and how damaging it is because it was a kind of hierarchical view of some people count, come before others and and so on. But you could imagine that someone who has that kind of understanding would know how to begin to talk to these people that she was doing her work, talk to him and say, you know, look at the fact that you're feeding this Republican government, which is giving everything to the oil industry and now suddenly Oil is bubbling up in your water sources. Maybe we should rethink this. But, uh, <clears throat> so it's that kind of uh, understanding which is driven underground on both left and right by highly moralistic bashing the others and so on. And that's something that we have to we have to get beyond. I think that you know that's why here I think I'm very much in in sync and sympathy with Jason. I find this kind of Ethnographic way of doing social science has much greater depth and interest and richness than let's find this one trick. That, you know, this one. Let's say everybody's trying to maximize something, trying to maximize X or Y, and, and you just get absolutely nowhere with that. I mean, it, it. You know, it bores me terrible to have to read that. But but Jason points out that it's not only boring; it's dangerous. <laughs> And we need to have another, we need to inculcate in universities another view of what social science is, another, you know, dominant view of what social science can be.
0: Jason, I know in your book you call at the conclusion of the of the text for a reinvention of the humanities. Is something like what Charles is discussing there a possible response that you would advocate for as well? I learned it from him. I learned it reading his books. <laughs>
1: So it's going to be a chorus of agreement, unfortunately, on there, which is not always the best for sort of philosophical dialogue. I mean, I would say that the problem, I, the way I talk about in the book is as an art of interpretation. It's kind of like my gloss on hermeneutics. Um, to the point about the left, I was provoked by that because technocracy can happen on the left as well. I mean, look at something like the Soviet system. Is that a left system? I'm only could debate it, but uh, it's generally thought to be a left system in an enactment of Marxist theory, et cetera, et cetera. And it's highly technocratic and it made the same move, which was basically, there's one scientific way of having society um, and we're gonna enact it as a set of mechanisms. And that also, it does a violence to the fact that human beings as self-interpreting storytelling animals, this is the humbling part. I think there's an epistemic humility in hermeneutics, which is that if you live stories, you're gonna have to kind of come to grips with the fact that there's not the scientifically official story you're gonna to have to have dialogue, debate, uncomfortable moments as a human being about which story to live. My, my son, he loves stories. He's three years old. He doesn't understand science yet. He understands stories. Um, stories are much more epistemically available. Um, and also we're always living them as human beings. So they're already something we're embodying. So um, I think that the, to the left, right point, yeah, we need an education in hermeneutics. I call for a revival of the humanities. I think there's something that I wanna call something like hermeneutic illiteracy that people are not good at reading political reality because we've defunded the liberal arts here and so on. But we lack historical consciousness. We don't know echoes in authoritarianism, things like that when we see it. But I don't mean to just say technocracy is something of the right, far from it. Um, it's, it's, it's a power grab that any of us can make with our politics. We can suddenly say, Hey, I've got a science, and now it just follows that you have to have my political
0: regime. Yeah, I remember in reading your book, um, feeling uncomfortable at multiple points because it felt like there was no comfortable place to stand. Like I, I was not allowed to stand on the left, or in the center, or on the right. And after I was dislocated that way, there was actually a moment of freedom. Like, well, okay, maybe I don't have to put pull my full weight in any of these places now. For me, obviously, I'm wearing a you know a very formal outfit at the moment that will uh, signify to many where I would like to put my, my stability of ground here. And maybe building a little bit off of this, we have a question from uh, David DeCasse for all the panelists. Patricia, maybe we could begin with you and then we'll move back through. Um, he asks, what is the possible role of the Catholic church in fostering this kind of positive democratic engagement that's being discussed here, especially given that the church in the United States seems to be just as polarized as anywhere else here. And that may not be true in uh, other European countries. I, I wish I could answer that question. I cannot, but um, if the church is supposed to include every kind of person within that divided political community, how ought we to you know, foster this kind of behavior from within our, our religious participation?
3: Well, I think that the, the the Church, at least the Catholic Church in Germany and in, in Europe, it's it's uh, ha- has very difficult times at the moment, as you know. So uh, it's a question of regaining also credibility in a certain role, which I think is very important to play, because we certainly face um, times where we don't know uh, we are in the middle of, of fog, because a paradigm is going to Finish soon. It seems it's still struggling to stay in power, but we don't know what will the future will be. We don't we don't know exactly what the new paradigm is all about, right? And so, in these times where um, you you lack clarity, I think that orientation is the most important thing you can de- deliver. Um, and I don't think top down orientation is possible anymore, but holding the space for finding together uh, a common orientation would I think be the role of all churches. Uh, and to me, I think this would be very important to, to play this role. And I, I can imagine that people would respond to that because there are not many players and actors around who can play this role as intermediary. And I think it, it would be um, very important again to, to, um, to start conversations how we should live in the future and give orientation at least a, a space for finding together orientation.
0: Beautiful. Uh, Charles or Jason, would you like to add anything?
2: Yeah, well, I think the Catholic church is really in a very strange position. Maybe not the only church. There's such a huge difference. I mean, a huge gap, a, a big uh, a chasm between what Catholics like me, <laughs> we see the world. and. How a lot of anyway U.S. Catholics, but also some bishops in my country, see the world where they they happily join this strange, in the United States case, is very strange American conservatism, which is really so wacky. <laughs> you know, I mean, it combines uh, such different things. They're not interested in conserving the planet, or conserving social solidarity, or the U.S. Constitution. But somehow having a lot of people having guns is a very good idea. It's something that I can't associate with the conservatives. But, But there is a conservative move in the church which is very afraid of any of the changes that might be proposed like gay marriage and so on. And it's hard to talk to each other. And I'm wondering, I'm often wondering, my sense is that the Catholic church is split up into affinity parishes which would have great trouble sitting down together. But we don't have the structures that bring us together because we don't have any decision-making structures that are not top-down. That is one of our big problems. If, if we had some kind of input from the parishes into what the, you know, the whole way the church conducts itself on a national level, let's say, they would have to sit down together, representatives of affinity parishes and so-called conservative parishes would have to sit down and talk together and have to listen to each other and, and find a way to get through to each other and find a way to understand what drives them and so on. <clears throat> and so I think the, you know, the great abiding problem of the Catholic Church since way back in the Middle Ages has been this kind of, mon- well, papal mon- monarchism or, if you like, total top down ism and so on. And we're not the only church like that, but we're, I guess we're the church which takes the championship in top down, uh, <laughs> uh, instead sort of top down structures. And you know, this is doing us immense harm, I think, all the time. And it's something that we really have to address at some point.
0: Thank you, Charles. Um, we have a question from uh, Paul Contino from the audience asks all of you, uh, what role do democratic virtues play in rebuilding our democracy? Both professors Taylor and Blakely suggest that bringing people together as earnest interlocutors can break down the barriers of the other, but can we guarantee that this kind of dialogue actually makes democracies healthier? Um, Is there such thing as too much faith in democratic conversation? I know there's been and actually an interesting strand of research that certain kinds of participatory democracy actually spin the cycle of democracy towards a downward when those participation mechanisms don't uh, come into play. So, um, Jason, perhaps we could start with you and then and then go to Charles or Patrizio.
1: Sure, I know Paul Contino; he's a great guy. Um, so thanks for that question. I guess that uh, I would say that, um, and to sort of reference the earlier point, I do see a role for the, the churches here Um, in terms of repairing solidarity, this is me just uh, echoing Pope Francis, but um, you know, our political communities ultimately fail us, uh, period, because we're finite, um, because the universe is finite, because our projects are finite. And just speaking from the tradition out of which I I come, which is the Catholic tradition, one of the things that's fascinating about um, Jesus is that in the gospels, his parables are always about a kingdom that's on the way, it's coming into the world, but I'm also always just walking toward it. Um, it gives a time horizon to accompaniment and to who belongs to you that's different than politics at the same time that it intermixes with our politics. Uh, you take the figures we were talking about earlier, like Martin Luther King. One of the reasons he was so um, like, just mind-bendingly powerful is that he could look over at people that were wishing to deal in physical harm and violence And he could see that further down the road on the journey, they were still together in some sense that they would be reconciled and that they were trapped like like, um, Charles was saying that they had a heavy load they were carrying in a way. And that maybe he could actually free them of it. Um, The churches have a role to play in this sort of um, that, that even supersedes or goes beyond any polity which is in what it means to belong to each other even beyond politics. And when we failed at politics, um, and one of the things I find uh, interesting or attractive and weird about this first-century Jewish person, Jesus, uh, is that he has this notion of community that always goes further than I'm willing to go—my uh, party, my uh, family, etc. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it is possible to put too much faith in democracy. I don't. I don't think any of the panelists here want to do that, but. Um, that's certainly a danger if you like, maybe this is just me being a hopeless Augustinian, but that you can sort of turn your highest thing into your politics. I mean, I'm an extremely politically enthusiastic individual uh, who wants to throw himself in there, but you can overdo it and ask things of politics that it cannot give
0: you. Beautiful. Um, Patricia or Charles, we'd love to hear from you or I have another question.
2: Well, I'm ready for the next question. Yeah,
3: I can. I can take it. Um, well, I think it's a very important question. Let me turn to the to the point where perhaps um, participation can sort of take the negative spin. It takes a negative spin if it's badly done, uh, if it and if um, so, if if it doesn't work, if if there's it's not very well moderated, if it's not uh, well organized, but most importantly. Uh, if it loses credibility, because it's cheap talk in the sense that people work together and then the results don't have any impact on reality. That's where it gets really difficult, right. Um, and so what is most important is that um, Even though it would not be sort of top down, uh, top down organized. So the, also the question of self organization. If there isn't a broader political culture able to, to work with the things uh, citizens uh, um, come up with then it, it's a big problem and this cooperative culture is of course quite and um, how can I say it? maybe an antidote but it's also nearly a contradiction to the political culture we have described before mm. which is driven by interests um, by by uh, competition between parties between interests between silos of ministries and it's always the other who doesn't deliver so it's not Uh, you know, it's not problem center, it's not common purpose um, center, Um, and so the the political system has a different culture than the bottom-up culture we propose, and that's why it gets really difficult and tricky. The only hope I have is that problems get so complex now, not only the climate change, but also even the pandemic, that we understand that this interest centered and not problem-centered way of going about in the government goes nowhere. and there is more and more voices that say that the government has to change to be more cooperative, be more centered to the common good and less sort of uh, uh, sort of co- competences driven would, because you don't know how the competence would be in respect to the problem because the problem is so complex. So this gives me hope that the, the critique now towards the government will change the culture as such that I think Jason is right, politics cannot, sort of, uh, how can it, it's not the answer to a fulfilled life and encounters between human beings, of course not. But the culture has to be somehow uh, in alliance with the cooperative mode of of, uh, solving problems uh, for citizens together with representatives.
0: We are coming right to the end of our time together, and I just want to ask each of you um, one final question, maybe a practical or pragmatic question. I'm sure there are many theorists and philosophers and social theorists that are on here with us, political scientists who have been listening and learning along with each of us, Um, but perhaps those who are, uh, those among us who are participatory citizens themselves, um, is there anything that you would like to say to these people who may be in attendance about how they can move forward? Any practical suggestions about how, from the bottom up, these things can be built in this difficult circumstance in which we uh, which we might begin?
2: Well, I mean, the obvious thing is get involved. <laughs> get involved in some kind of political movement that is that is moving things in the right direction to have a more a democracy, which in which we listen to each other more, in which we you know learn from each other more, in which in which the people understand what the levers are, it's less less opaque. The only thing, I mean, to solve that, I mean, a lot of books that we could over read, but to solve that problem, you've got to get out of your living room.
0: Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Jason. I'm good with that. I'll leave it at that. Very good, Patricia, Anything you would like to add?
3: not just one sentence. I think in every local community, there are many possibilities and it's not so difficult to find one.
0: <laughs> beautiful, a beautiful note upon which to end, a mini uh, for which, uh, with, with which we can conclude. Uh, thank you. We would like to thank you very much here. Uh, I would like to thank each of you who've joined us here in the audience and professors Blakely and Taylor and Nance, really grateful for your participation, your wisdom, your hopefulness, your incisive criticism, your insights here today. It's been a pleasure to discuss these difficult issues with you.